by Lucille Bogan, recorded almost 100 years ago. Guess what BD stands for? Bull Dyke, or Bull Dagger, which was Roaring Twenties slang for big lesbian. Oh, Daddy, I'm a lesbian. A big one. Lucille Bogan was one of the many jazz women who openly sang about their bisexual lifestyles in the 1920s. But two of these women became the most celebrated and influential blues divas of the day. Gertrude Ma Rainey was known as the mother of the blues. She helped bring the new Southern sound to the mainstream in her electric performances. Bessie Smith was her protege until she broke out on her own and became known as the Empress of the Blues, brag. While they built their musical careers, both women literally invented bisexual chic before the flappers latched onto it. They were brilliant musicians who forged their own paths to fame and fortune through endless racism and misogyny. This, my friends, is the story of two bold, swaggering BD women engaged in a whirlwind of sexual discovery that would make Cardi B feel, well, probably right at home, actually. Now, as Cardi B would say, there's clearly some whores in this house. I said certified free seven days a week. So ditch your drawers and pull up those sopping speedos because tonight the water is a perfect 98.6 degrees, a.k.a. human temperature. Welcome back to another episode of Historical Homos, the world's only no-fucks-given guide to queer history. I am so excited to delve into the bisexual blues with you this week, Donal. It's been, it's been a week. It's been a day. How are you? It sure has. It sure has. And the temperatures are rising, Bashala. They certainly are all across the southern and western and eastern and northern and ups and downs of the United States. We got a boiling. 
And uh, this, well, you're um, boiling in Palm Springs. We know <laughs> literally that. Literally boiling. I had a, a a moment yesterday where I was talking to a friend, and I heard myself say, "I'm literally having the worst summer ever." <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like such a little bitch um, when I said that. <laughs> well, but anyway, I, I am. I mean. Every- <laughs> I can understand if you're roasting to a crisp in the literal fucking desert. Um, yeah, you hot little is, beetle. It is extraordinarily beautiful, and I should be very grateful. And uh, I have managed to, you know, I didn't. Uh, that, I none of that. None of that. This is no, the no fucks given guide to queer yes, history. We don't exactly. give a shit about gratitude. Shit. Enough. Um, I, Enough. Wait, wait. No. I just have to say one more thing, which is that Bashella is crazy um, <laughs> and sounds like a bacteria that was just <laughs> discovered. Um, it sounds very. It sounds very petri dish. So oh, thank yeah. you for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> anyway, Bash Ella, enough. Okay, everybody, take your pants off and let's get into it. So as you know, Donal, we like to set the scene with a little bit of context, historical background. Because this is a bit, and especially now that we get into the modern stories, there's so much fucking going on. So let's just clarify where we are, what we're doing. We're in the 1920s. There's lots of gay happening everywhere, all over the world, but especially in New York City and particularly uptown in Harlem. Now this is, we're talking about lesbians. Actually, we're talking about bisexuals today. Let's be clear mm-hmm. about that. Um, and... So there's obviously bisexual women, and there's a lot going on in this period for women. It's the, uh, you know, we're after the Victorian era, a.k.a. the era of boring AF sexuality. Women have more money, more personal freedom. They're showing their ankles. They're going outside. They're being allowed to breathe. Um, All sorts of new liberties. And as you mentioned the other day, um, voting also they're doing. Right, yeah. So which they're I really think is very, yeah, which is interesting because that's when they finally get actual power. People start actually taking them seriously when they can vote when they're a voting block. How fascinating! Yeah, well, wh- white women, white women, <laughs> certainly. True. Um, but uh, I think it is, yeah. I think it's, it's personally, I find it shocking that they allow women to vote. No, just kidding. Um, it's also the um period of prohibition, so people are pretending like they're not drinking. Um. I actually completely forgot that prohibition was literally an amendment in the United States Constitution. Like, and then there's another amendment that repeals it, uh, um, like 10, whatever years later, 15 years later. I just think it's so crazy, you know, off the back of our Supreme Court discussion. I think it's so Mm. crazy that people are like, we can't have any amendments about guns or anything like that. But then they did one for this fucking prohibition bullshit. And that happened just fine. So the Constitution can be amended for anything. Obviously. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, it's a big time for women. A lot is happening for them. They're cutting their hair short, for God's sake. And it's also, there are a lot of changes in um, the America's black population as well. So both Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey were black bisexual singers. Um, so this is the other aspect of their identity that we're going to go into today. And one of the biggest changes at this time in the 1920s, 1910s, is real mass urbanization, which is called the Great Migration. I remember doing that in 11th grade United States history. The Great Speaking Migration. Speaking of 11th where, grade United States history, Bash, should we mm. talk a little bit about, um, for some of our European listeners, uh, and talk about Reconstruction? For just a tiny little side note, because I think that is a big part of this. Right? Yes. Isn't this during Reconstruction? 
No, this is this is post this is like post the post reconstruction era. Post, so you kind of have civil civil war reconstruction which lasts for like a decade and then post reconstruction which lasts for a couple decades and then we have World War 1 and everything and then the roaring 20s. But yes, no, that's a good point because um Ma Rainey in particular was born in the wake of the post recon well, right in smack in the middle of the post reconstruction era. Um, and particularly in the South, it's had a huge impact on, on black population. So reconstruction was the period, the very brief period, experimental period after the civil war, after all enslaved people were emancipated when the American government government was like, huh, maybe we should do something to help all of these formerly enslaved people integrate into society and get jobs and create wealth and blah, 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 live the American dream. And then of course the Southern bastards after 10 years or so of that were like, um, actually, I don't like this idea at all. And that was the post-Reconstruction era where all the Jim Crow laws got codified that were, you know, left over from um, earlier periods of slavery. But these were obviously all extremely restrictive law codes that basically kept Black people poor and unemployed. Mm. Um, and, uh, or, you know, not regularly employed or employed in extremely impoverishing jobs. So that was, yeah, that's really important background actually for why so much of the black population also moved to the cities, right? People were yeah, literally Yeah, because in prepping for this episode, like I, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole with that. And it's almost like when, when the North won the Civil War, they almost might as well not have won it because they basically, they won this war and then they were like, and you guys can do whatever the hell you want. Um, right. And so it's just, well, they it's did, just they did try, they did try for a hot second. We, we have right. to, we have to, reconstruction is a very cool, that, that was the time that uh, in, during reconstruction, the first black politicians were elected to Congress, for example, like there was a, a real, ma and obviously it was, um, obviously the black population was a huge part of that as well, right? It's not like they were just passively sitting back and being like, oh, tell us what to do. There were a lot of, um, uh, there was a lot of activism. There was a lot of involvement. Um, nice. But yeah, no, I think, I think they were, I, I think um, in the post-reconstruction era, uh, black people were absolutely forgotten um, in terms of the economic equity that, you know, everyone was like, oh, you, you, you're, uh, you should be happy that you're free, basically, rather right. than, you know. And from this milieu, um, Gertrude and uh, Bessie were birthed. And then this is the time of the Great Migration, which is when a lot of the Southern Blacks migrated to the Northern states where they would have more freedoms and more economic opportunities, right? Yeah. And just to give everyone like a picture of how great the migration was, by 1920, that it's estimated that there were roughly half a million black people living only just in Harlem, right? Wow. Um, so that's pretty. That's a pretty large population for the time. And Harlem actually became, as we all know from you know the Harlem Renaissance and other cool parties we wish we'd been invited to at the time. Harlem was the major leader in music, art, the literary scene, philosophy, civil rights. But actually, right before that, it had been Chicago. Chicago was the big, hmm. um, which was also a, a, a city with a large black population still today, obviously. Um, and um, and Chicago was where a lot of singers got their start, including another lesbian um, black blues singer that we will talk about. But Harlem was interesting because for, for whatever reason, people were sort of accepting of sexual experimentation in Harlem 
Um, so there were all sorts of amazing things going on, like drag shows and what they call freak shows, um, evenings set aside for gays, lesbians, bisexuals, transvestites, transgender people. Um, so it was kind of like, I, I think the vibe was, let's go up to Harlem. We'll have a good time. We can like sort of see the sexual circus up there. Um, yeah. and there were, and there was, you know, this circuit of drag balls, um, that actually started, there was this one period called the pansy craze, um, where all of these, which is the name of my forthcoming hmm. memoir, of course. Um, <laughs> Your child. And Ch- chapter one. Ch- chapter, chapter one. one in, which, in which the pansy craze. <laughs> to start my life with the beginning of my life, a record of the pansy craze. Um, in which the pansy finds her craze. In which um, the pansy is born. So everyone's obsessed with these drag balls that happen in Harlem. They also happen in Brooklyn, if I recall, but some of them are also happening at like big hotels in Manhattan at one point, like the Savoy. Um, And all of these like famous people are starting to show up at, you know, and a lot of white people are starting to come to them. And it's, and suddenly it's not just like this sort of fringe thing that's happening in Harlem. Um, So they actually become quite like well attended. And there are all of these, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god i forgot about this there are all of these um headlines about um which i can see and, and, I, um, and of course visual medium i i chose to put a picture into this podcast but one of the headlines just reads fag balls exposed <laughs> which is <laughs> which has the other best three words yeah um and then there's um all this stuff. i mean all these headlines where they're calling gay people like queers and fairies and blah 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 so it's like obviously extremely bigoted and crazy and horrible but there's also like a lot of visibility, I think, um, at the time. At least there's really starting to like these subcultures are really starting to develop. And mm. part of that, I would say, is this idea of like bisexual chic, which black women literally invented. Yeah, I did. Um, and these are two of the black women that invented it in America, where and I mean it was happening in Paris as well, in Berlin, in all of those places, Vienna. Mm-hmm. But there was there was something about, in America at least, I think there was something about Black identity that allowed more sexual experimentation in some ways in, in some of these neighborhoods, um, in some of these areas. And and of course, being in the music and entertainment industry meant you were introduced to a lot of people, you traveled a lot, you had these like essentially traveling, you know, movable feasts, traveling parties, um, going from one club to another. And so Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey were actually also kind of creating these queer spaces by, you know, exporting this blues culture to all of these different cities and states. Um, Would it be safe to say that this was the beginning of the ballroom scene as we know it today? Yeah, no, I, that's exactly where this comes from. That's exactly mm-hmm. the, this period. Um, and, and another one I forgot, another guy I forgot to mention is um, one of the first black drag queens that we know about named William Dorsey Swan. And he actually started, or at least was a huge part of one of the uh, regular yearly balls called the Odd Fellows Ball, which started in 1869. So that was mm-hmm. like really, you know, that's a long time ago. Um, and and I think the drag, the ballroom culture can trace itself right back to, to you know, those early pageants, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And the looks were pretty balling too, actually. You know, I was... When we were prepping, I was looking at, up at some of the, um, I guess, what would pass as paparazzi pictures. You know, the giant explosion with people women getting out of these giant rolls oh, yeah. and stuff. And, uh, you know, the kind of the, the 
this flapper hats and the giant shawl color shawl color for okay i've got another got another image for you guys but there's this old image of um a nightclub it's called a nightclub map of harlem and it's like this really stylized beautiful um map of uh, of all the clubs that were up on like the 130s 140s and like 7th avenue lennox avenue um and this is Looks where, like a map of disneyland know, <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and uh and this is where like the cotton club was which is um i mean there's another one now that i don't think is the original but um the cotton club was interesting because only white uh people could go there as audience as the audience members um but it was all black musicians um so heavily attended by all the white people downtown who were like let's go up to harlem and have a much better night than we will down you know here right. in manhattan um and then but there were also all of these queer spaces so one of them um <laughs> lovingly called the clam house was uh this really like narrow smoky speakeasy on 133rd street and the clam house was famous because uh gladys bentley was the the major act there and now Gladys Bentley was a 250 pound mask lesbian who performed all night in like a long, in a white tuxedo and a, and a white top hat. Um, and she was a magnificent pianist apparently. Um, wow. And then had this big, like, you know, deep growling voice, kind of bluesy, jazzy. And, um, and she was famous because she just invented obscene lyrics to all of the popular contemporary songs from musicals um, and played them, played them live. Langston Hughes apparently saw her one night and said she was an amazing exhibition of musical energy. I don't want no man that I got to give my money to. Which is not too Putting shabby. Putting it lightly. Yeah. 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 Not, not, his, not his most poetic, maybe. It sounds pretty clinical. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, there are people like that hanging around and they're not total outliers. Like there's a whole community around them. Um, and then the homo culture wasn't exclusive to, you know, establishments, speakeasies, clubs. There were also, a, there was also a private network of apartments and small businesses that frequently turned into like sex shows or sex parties mm. um and the term at the time that they used for it was a buffet flat buffet um, flat. And buffet flat is then like a buffet flat like a buffet apartment like a flat is in the uk version of an apartment or oh yeah 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 flat right? flat equals like apartment. Flat. yeah gotcha yeah um, but we have this one quote actually from Bessie Smith's niece, Ruby Walker, who was a chorus girl on tour with her for a lot. And she describes one of these buffet flats, which admittedly this one was in Detroit. But um, this is this is how she describes it. It was nothing but faggots and bull dykes, a real open house. Everything went on in that house. Tongue baths, you name it. They called them buffet flats because buffet meant everything, everything that's in the life. Bessie was well known in that place. Okay, I don't know who that person was. I don't know who that accent was, but that just came completely naturally. I started doing that. <laughs> it was amazing. It was very Ken Burns. It was very, you know, like over over the over the photograph moving towards. The I, I I felt it was kind of Kenneth Parcell from um, Thirty Rock. Do you watch? 30 oh Rock? yeah, of course. Yeah, there's nothing in Ken there but faggots and bullshit. <laughs> it was nothing Amazing. but faggots and bulldogs. Um, no, so buffet flats, I think, are such a great name because buffet, everything, every, you can have a taste of everything. Um, that's an example of the kind of stuff that was going on at your aunt's house in Harlem circa 1920. Um, mm. And there were a lot. This was also a period where um, 
black wealth was also being created for not maybe not the first first time in in the country's history but um there were some you know there were incredible figures living in harlem at this time uh one of one of my favorites is uh madam cj walker who was one of the first black millionaire s's uh, she became famous for this hair product that she invented and marketed all over the States and the Caribbean. She, and her daughter, Alelia Walker, became an heiress, basically, uh, a, a black heiress living in Harlem. And she was known for her bisexual parties and for having all of these queer friends. And Harlem was, of course, full of all of these other queer luminaries like Langston Hughes, who we already mentioned, the poet everyone knows from um, those two poems that everyone reads in second grade. And Claude McKay, another poet, Counte Cullen, another poet, um, Mabel Hampton, who was a lesbian activist and chorus line dancer, all of these people. And, and Alain Leroy Locke, who was a gay philosopher and wrote something called The New Negro, which became a sort of manifesto for the Harlem Renaissance in 1925. He was very gay and ran the philosophy department at Howard University, which is a historically black um, university. Mm. So super talented people all smushed together in Harlem, having a gay old time. And then the sort of darker side of this is all of the kind of like white voyeurism and sexual tourism that was basically happening because white people in, in the mid 1920s sort of realized that the party is up in Harlem. Um, and, and in many ways there, I think there's an element of kind of using Harlem and other black neighborhoods as, as kind of fringe areas where you're allowed to go wild, where you're allowed to experiment sexually. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of not so, not so great side to all of this, I would say. Um, and I think the last thing, the last contextual thing that's really important is we are still operating in a, in a world where there is no fully formed gay or lesbian identity. It's starting. And there's a lot of background psychology that's going on, sexology, a field, you know, a word we don't really use anymore today, but was basically sex psychologist. Um, and there's a lot of discussion around what classifies someone as a homosexual or an invert or any of these words that they came up with to hmm. you remember in our first episode in our second episode Donal, we talked about um aeonism which was the hmm. word that one of them came up with based on the chevalier deon so that's the kind of that's we're in the victorian post-victorian era of like taxonomies and classification and everything gets a little label that means something specific. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, if you look at what was going on around the same time in Berlin and the Weimar. Do you feel good? Yeah, I bet you do. So much queer theory um, going on around transgenderism, non-binary. Um, and there was actually um, there was a, a particular clinic that was opened. I can't remember the names of the of the doctor. I think there were I think there were maybe a couple actually in Europe yeah. where people or there were at least a couple surgeons who who started performing sex reassignment surgeries. Yeah. Um, that's what happens to in the Danish Girl to Lily Elba, um, right? Bra bravely yeah. played by straight actor Eddie Redmayne. 
Um, and also whom I cannot of... stand, by the way. Can I just say that? I really? can't fucking stand. I don't know what it is about his dumb little face. But I just want to <laughs> squish He's very pouty, isn't he? It's almost oh, like they, God, they grow those me. actors somewhere. Like, I mean, they're all, they all just come through this like industrial mill of like English upper class, like perfection and annoyance. Oh, like qu- quirky, Point quirky count. English, quirky, freckly yeah. English twinks. Yeah, no, there's you know? definitely a factory somewhere. <laughs> But speaking of um, white sexual tourism in Harlem, because I, I just want to touch on a little bit of um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, because he kind of like forged the American soul a little bit during this time with the um, the Great Gatsby, and they taught they touch on that a little bit. It must have been quite the uh, it, it, you know it must have been quite the destination. It must have been very prevalent. I mean, it must have been known just not just in New York City, but also all over the country that this was the place to be. This was the mm. the tone that was set and all the rest of it because they do talk about like going you know to hear music up in Harlem and all that. But also the musicians yeah. and the dancing and all the rest of it around it must have just been such a such a scene. Yeah, so yeah, you're right. It would have been. It would have felt very new. Like like because only thirty years ago people were wearing like women were wearing like floor length bloody dresses. You know, like it's, it's pretty wild thirty years b- before this period. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I know. Not even thirty years, <laughs> I was, right? I was like thirty. I was like the nineteen nineties, floor length dresses. Um, <laughs> no, no, not even. 30, no, that's not totally even. true. Yeah, hemlines j- jumped like three feet in the space of fifteen years, darling. Um, <laughs> plummeted. Um, no, I think that's true, and I think this is basically the time in which New York kind of becomes New York. You know, when mm-hmm. all of the things that we think make old New York, old New York, like. Broadway, Harlem, all of these, you know, cultural kind of like explosions really start to gather steam. That said, it wasn't all about Harlem. Ma and Bessie actually got their start in the South, of course, where the blues was born. And let's take a little trip down there now. Okay, so first we have to talk about Ma Rainey, the mother of the blues. And Ma, I'm trying to think of who the modern equivalent would be, but Ma is different than Bessie for me because Bessie was all about the voice. You know, Bessie is really the Whitney Houston. She's about the emotional power of her voice and and the, and really the musical quality of her voice. When you listen to the recordings between the two, you can tell Bessie is kind of more the the, the singer. But um, But Ma was more the performer. I think. And she became popular because she had these incredible lavish shows that, well, I don't know if lavish is the right word, but she had these incredible electric shows full of energy. And she was basically a symbol of economic independence in the post-reconstruction black Is she the Lizzo? South. Is she the Lizzo of... of oh my um, God, yes! You know? So good, yes. Kind of, she's giving yeah. you. She's giving you, like, this concert is actually church, you know? Like, that kind of yeah. vibe. Like, what do you think of that controversy all around? There's, like, all that controversy around Lizzo now. I'm sorry, I don't put her. any... I don't put any stock in that whatsoever. Like, I'm very Lizzo, skeptical. Yeah. Lizzo yeah. could piss on a baby and I would still love her. I just saw her at Glastonbury and she was she was incandescent. She rocked. Yeah, I just don't amazing. believe that whatsoever. She's such. She has such a like pure soul. Um, so yeah. yeah. Okay. Amazing. Yes. Insight. <laughs> uh, so Ma Rainey is the Lizzo of 1920s blues, specific. 
Um, but she becomes really famous because she really, she obviously exemplified the life of the blues life. You know, she was born extremely poor. She was born Gertrude Pridgett, actually, around 1886. We don't know the real year that she was born in Columbus, Georgia. And she, her parents were actually traveling musicians. So she was in the life from the beginning. And this was also the era of vaudeville, you know, when all of these shows were not just musical concerts, they were comedy shows, they were variety shows, basically. And Gertrude, or Ma Rainey, as she became known in 1904, when she married Pa Rainey, William Pa Rainey, clever, clever name there, Mm -hmm. Pa and Ma Rainey, um, she she discovered the blues in one of her traveling troops um, on this vaudeville circuit. They, they and, and actually, that whole circuit went back to the days of um, what are called minstrel shows and, and minstrel troops, which were originally white people in blackface putting on these extremely racist shows about, um, you know, mocking black people. And they were sort of early musicals. And, uh, and then after the Civil War... Uh, black musicians reappropriated that form and sort of turned it into their own thing and and toured in their own minstrel shows. So um, mm. so this is this is what you were talking about before. It was kind of like the the in between period that Ma Rainey grew up in between the 1920s glitzy glitzy Great Gatsby and the extremely dark you know uh, economic reality that was Reconstruction and post Reconstruction America. Um, now they don't but, really have an exact date for her of her birthday, right? She, they're not because yeah. the records uh, for you know women, and children, people in general of this particular economic um, situation, where it was just pretty much there's not a lot of records around this time for for when people were born and when people when people died, unfortunately. Yeah, and I mean, when I say she was born poor, I mean she was born dirt poor. Like right. you know, they had nothing. They were they were traveling. They were traveling artists like. Uh, so she really she moved around a lot. She got started singing at around age fourteen or some somewhere around there, and because she discovered the blues so early, I think she must have been maybe sixteen, seventeen uh, when it when it's believed that she sort of first heard this sound. Um, she grew up with it to some extent as a musician, and she helped evolve it. She helped bring it to the mainstream. So Ma Rainey is like really a kind of an ancestress of a lot of modern music as a lot of as a lot of blues musicians are many of them black many of them forgotten because you know mm-hmm. white musicians took over in the 30s 40s 50s but um she really helped evolve the sound audiences loved her um she apparently met Bessie Smith in around uh 1912 1913 and became Bessie Smith's vocal coach and maybe also introduced her to diddling ye old chorus girl mm. um i'm pretty sure that in like one of the movies about her that's sort of what happened like you know that hbo one called bessie mm-hmm. where yeah. um is that what ha- i think i think mom she gets bessie on the and she's like, train yeah right? yeah she gets on yeah the, like, and then the there's like carriage. some hot girls some hot girls lounging lasciviously um yeah. So, so, and then there's also this kind of, um, there are different kinds of blues music, right? So, um, she picks up all of these different influences. There's Mississippi blues, which is like really raspy singing and, um, 
and then there's uh, Carolina Georgia blues, which is more melodic singing. So she plays around with the form and has lots of different songs. Um, and she's also into what's called the dirty blues, um, which is, you know, obviously some blue blues songs where anything's on the table in terms of topic. And uh, and she mm. she became partly known, I think, as a singer who wasn't afraid to sing about sex with men or with women, who wasn't afraid to sing about poverty and race and uh, and, and the darker side of life in Southern America. Mm -hmm. She and also, despite being from the South, despite being from the extremely racist South at the time, she insisted on performing for integrated audiences. So she would reserve half her tent for white people, half her tent for black people. Now, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that doesn't mean that all the black people are on one side and all the white people are on one side, because I think she insisted that these audiences be integrated. But I think that's another really interesting thing about her and shows like the power of music, you know, to, to cross yeah, people those ideological to lines. Yeah, like they were like people were willing to kind of go out into these kind of current rural settings. They'd set up tents and it was like a whole kind of happening, wasn't it? Right, exactly. Like, um, and it's and it's actually kind of risky, you know, because you can, you, as we'll mm -hmm. see with Bessie Smith, who was once um, the KKK tried to step to her in one of her um, mm -hmm. in one of her tent shows. Um, but yeah, there's. It's not like there are any cops like protecting you. You know, it's not a Lizzo concert in that sense. It's not like there's any like protection. It's like these people are setting up and and putting their asses on the line um, to make a, to make a living. So. I think what's, but we have to talk about like Ma Rainey's performance style too. Um, do you want to read this bit, Donal? This little yeah. excerpt at the yeah. top. When she started singing, the gold in her teeth would sparkle. She was in the spotlight. She possessed listeners. They swayed, they rocked, they moaned and groaned as they felt the blues with her. Wow. And she was adorned mm. in a diamond tiara a necklace made out of $20 pieces, rings on every Sick. finger, and wearing a golden gown with a gold, with her gold cap teeth. She was, and she carried a gun in her stockings, I'm sure, and a giant ostrich plume. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, to be come old? the fuck on. Fierce. Um, I, I do think she might have benefited from that age old Coco Chanel quote of always take one thing off before you leave the house. Right. But, <laughs> but it's yes. pretty fucking baller. This, the necklace made out of $20 pieces. That's merch. We're making that merch for you listeners. Yeah. Um, the Ma, the Ma Rainey necklace. Uh, so she's obviously got this like larger than life stage presence, big personality. She comes out, you know, and she grew up in the vaudeville days. So she comes out, uh, she has comedians come out in the beginning of the show. They warm people up. There's the chorus girls who come and do their, you know, dances in a line, um, energy, energy, energy. And then after all of that, Ma makes her grand entrance and comes out and begins her set. And she would sing all of these beautiful blues songs, um, some of which are definitely part of the dirty blues. Uh, my favorite is called Jelly Roll Blues. Mm -hmm. um, and Jelly Roll is just code for fucking. So the, so that song is really just fuck blues. The general, um, fuck, yeah, I love it. Yeah, fuck me blues. Um and uh and I also I read that it was it's called jelly roll because like an actual jelly roll, you know that thing that you buy like that dessert. Um right. that for some reason looks like sex and I was like, nah, that's not a good image." <laughs> well, yeah. Little swirly little swirly no, spiral too of far jelly. Off. <laughs> 
Now, at the same time, we have to talk about Ma's lesbianity, bisexuality. Her lesbian tastes were very well known. And again, this is the there's this chorus girl culture, so there's no shortage of young, hot, pretty things uh, dancing around on the stages. And Ma, I mean, let's be clear, Ma was firmly bisexual, right? Probably wouldn't have used that term, but she was not exclusively lesbian. Um, she sang plenty of saucy songs about having sex with men, too. However, we are, of course, concerned primarily with the sapphic smut. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought I, I thought we could look at two songs. Um, so one of her more lesbianic songs is called Prove It On Me Blues. Prove It On Me Blues is all about a butch woman who makes no apology for chasing after women because she prefers their company in every way so let's just let's do a little listen because it's fun because it's fun let's do it it's also just so amazing to me to hear this sound that is literally 100 plus years old like it's incredible So cool. Is she talking about dressing up in a shirt and a tie there as well, right? Yeah, so that's Going that's out. part of the lyric. Yeah, she says, um, wait, let me let me just get the lyrics quickly. Yeah, because I, I heard she's like it she's is, going out with her friends and she's dressed in a shirt and a tie and she's yeah, don't it's want like no man. Went out last night with a bunch of my friends, must have been women, because I don't like no men. It's true I wear a collar and a tie, makes the wind blow all the while, which I don't really know what that means. Don't you say I do it? Ain't nobody caught me. Sure got to prove it on me. Um, oh, wow. So she's al- she's almost kind of like playing. She's she's like, yeah, no, I'm definitely doing this gay stuff. But then also being like acknowledging that it's bad, that it's fringe, that it's sort of subversive and being like, but you can't prove that I did it. And mm. the album cover of the song is really interesting. It's got a um, or the advertisement for the re- release of the song has this very clearly blues woman butch in a collar jacket hat tie and a policeman is looking on in the distance as as this woman is you know this bd woman is obviously attempting to seduce two young hotties on the street corner so it's like it's pretty blatant yeah yeah it's interesting because it's almost like it was it was such an innocent time it was almost before anybody could really really knew what she was kind of talking about it was so kind of subversive she was almost pulling like a fast one on 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 the well, censors and the general public, right? I, don't I mean, know. And people I mean, knew what she I, was talking about, but like the sense, I you see know, what the general, you mean. The powers that be, I suppose. no, I see what you mean, and I thought that too at first, but then I was like, I think this is a lingo that like everybody was in on. Do you know what I mean? And right, also, like right. the the there are some other songs that are like pretty fucking aggressively sexual. So it's like they there was she definitely a lot. Yeah, I mean, this one is more, this one was recorded and released. You know, it's more like a, I guess there is a sort of um, there's more thought that goes into like the the veiling of of what she's actually saying. 
but mm. I mean, they must I have guess been women because I don't like no men. Like it's yeah. pretty pretty clear what her implication is there. I guess what, what you know, kind of what I'm getting at, or what one parallel was like, what was kind of going on in Hollywood at the time before the censors and got their hands on what was actually going on. There was all of these like subversive movies made. Mm. Uh, like in 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 a, in a sense, the 1920s in Hollywood was much more avant-garde and progressive and daring than the 1940s or even like the late 1930s compared yeah. to what was considered the golden age because it was just the wild west like nobody knew, you know what i mean there was no censors there was no massive studios people were just doing whatever they wanted um right well that did ha- that did happen as well in in musical history i think there was like this um uh, what's the word that I want to say? There was like this response in the 1930s because everyone was like, okay, I'm actually kind of tired of hearing about all the poverty and sadness and sex from the blues. And I'd like to hear something a little more sanitized, please. So that actually, as we'll see, kind of did not do wonders for the careers of Ma Rainey mm. and Bessie Smith. So there definitely was a similar kind of move, I think, um, a similar reaction against blues music. The gotcha. other song that I have to bring up from Ma, that Ma Rainey sang is called Sissy Blues. Now, this one is interesting <laughs> because it's not about Ma Rainey being gay, but it's about it's Ma Rainey singing about how her man got stolen by a sissy named Miss Kate, who is, of course, a gay homosexual man. Um, so like the, some of the lyrics are like, some are young, some are old. My man said sissy's got good jelly roll. aka he's a he's a good Good fuck fuck. yeah and um then the other one is my man's got a sissy his name is miss kate he shook that thing like jelly on a plate so that you know like that's what i mean like when you're saying that i'm thinking like he shook that thing like jelly on a plate okay you could have said like he he shook his you know it could have been cardi b level Mm. um but so there there is i think some propriety involved which almost makes it more fun and clever um but yeah there's then there's the line before it when it's like my man's got a sissy his name's miss kate <laughs> like that you know wow. we're being pretty open about what's going on um so anyway that's a little example of of kind of the types of songs that ma sang she she recorded she so in the early 1920s um when she must have been about 30 to 40 you know getting into late late 30s she signed a record contract with Paramount, which was one of the big recording companies at the time. And over the next five, six, seven years, recorded almost 100 tracks, um, which I, I think we still have all, all of them, or at least almost all of them. And these record companies marketed these tracks to Black communities, primarily. So they were sold as, they, they were called race records, creative, mm. creative title there. And... Um, they were destined for uh, black markets, but they ob- <laughs> black markets, not black markets. They were destined for uh, black communities. That was the target, but they obviously ended up selling a lot more, and they really influenced the musical culture of the time. Like that's what helped propagate the sound of the blues, which is really interesting. Mm. Um, I think that's probably why the blues is so influential on like rock and roll and stuff like that, because it was the first musical style to be picked up that was really, you know, propagated in that way. Um, mm. And on these tracks, she she performs with Louis Armstrong, with Thomas Dorsey, Fletcher Henderson, all of these like big names in jazz music and and the blues. Um, and she also made a nice amount of money too. They sent her on mm. tours. They uh, so this really changed her life, and she was able to to accumulate 
some level of wealth. But it was nowhere near as much as Bessie Smith, fellow bisexual empress of the blues, who we turn to now. I got the world in a jar Like we said, Bessie Smith was more the Whitney Houston of the two, right? She's got the beautiful, warbling voice. Uh, she really, I think, was she was a bit younger as well. She or the was, Beyonce, uh, maybe the Beyonce. If the Lizzo comparison, yeah. should we use something a little bit more com- like contemporary? Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> maybe, okay, Mister okay, okay, Gen Z. She's giving okay, me Gen she's Z. Giving me Beyonce vibes, you know. She, I uh, think so. But I always thought of Josephine Baker as more of the. Beyonce, just in terms of like, you know, kind of dancer, like international, ba, ba, boom. Um, I mean, Bessie Smith was definitely more, well, not that Whitney Houston was international too. But anyway, I I think it's just more because (laughs) when you listen to Bessie Smith, like it's, it is much more about the voice, I think. And um, she just had this sort of raw emotional power in her voice that Mm -hmm. she was known for. So she was born in Tennessee in 1894 and similarly grew up very poor. Her father was a minister, but he died when she was like four or something like that. So very young. Um, And then when she's 12 years old, her mother dies and two of her brothers. So Bessie and her four surviving siblings are raised by an aunt. And she eventually meets Ma Rainey on one of these you know, traveling troop circuits and intercepts Ma successfully and gets her to take her on, presumably as part of Ma's troop at the time. And that introduced her to the blues. It introduced her to the life, as they always call it. She was she was obviously very talented. I believe she was a chorus line girl first. So she tried her hand at dancing um, and then was obviously uh, obviously became a much better singer. So she broke out on her own in the late 19 teens and started touring. She settled in Philadelphia. So she also, Bessie Smith was more associated with the Harlem scene. She went up north more than Ma, from what I can tell, um, or at least to New York. And in 1923, where we left off with Ma, Bessie also cuts a deal with Paramount. But her shit kind of takes off like mega. So she sang this beautiful song called Downhearted Blues, which sells over 700,000 copies in the first six months, right? Wow. Uh, making her, making her, so that's like more than all of Black Harlem at the time, if you remember mm. that figure. So, I mean, it makes her a star. She, uh, she makes a lot of money. I think they sell 2 million of those records in the first two years or something like that. So, and then side note about Downhearted Blues, it was actually written by another black lesbian blues singer named Alberta Hunter, who I think we have to do our own episode on because she has such a fabulous, interesting life story. Um, and she was really a full on, you know, lesbian from, from the get go, grew up in the Chicago musical scene, then moved to, uh, New York and she was a a songwriter, right? So she actually, she, there's this recording of her from later in the seventies where she's like, thank God for Bessie Smith, because I wrote that song and she made me, you know, all my money. 
um because she got a cut of that that two million those two million records and you know it's a um, fun fact we actually have a um in one of our movies that we made uh, with our production company uh shiru process we had we licensed a bessie smith song nobody loves you when you're down i think i mentioned this oh yeah and it was something because we dealt we dealt with her uh i guess her estate um you know and there uh, I think it's one of our like you know great great grand nephews or something like that. I mean, oh, it's wow. def- it's it's through Columbia, I believe, or some one of the bigger. Uh, yeah, things. but we did have to. They they still own like a portion of it, so we had some of the royalties kind of went to them. It was so cool. I was like, it was such a proud moment when that when that song comes on in the movie. Every time when I hear that voice, I'm always like, oh, that's God, such so it's good. such a cool it wasn't song. cheap. I, it wasn't, but it, I'm glad we did it. <laughs> hey, it was worth it, baby. Um, totally. No, that's a great song. What is it? It's No One Loves You When You're Down and Out. Once I Lived a Life of a Millionaire. It was like, I can't remember exactly the name of it, but. Yeah, what? Okay, well, nobody knows you when you're down. Nobody knows you. That's it. Nobody knows you when you're down. Oh, that's it. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
So she she obviously had a real big personality and, you know, she liked her drink. She liked her men. She liked her women. It's right around this time that she, um, in fact, breaks Ma Rainey out of jail or bails her out of jail after Ma is arrested for hosting a lesbian party in her apartment in Chicago. So just a, just a reminder that, you know, mm. yeah, it's all fun and games, blah, 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 until the cops show up and arrest you for being queer. That's the kind of shit that was happening. Um, so the other side of, of Bessie's bisexual life is her marriage to this man, Jack Gee, or G, um, G-E-E, Jack J. And um, they had what can only be described as a extremely mutually abusive relationship. Um, there are all of these stories about their crazy back and forth. Jack was obviously a crazy, aggressive narcissist, but Bessie was no, um, you know, calm, mm. calm, cool cucumber herself. Uh, she, there was a story about how she had been about he, how, there was this story about how Bessie had heard that Jack had been messing around with a chorus girl while she had been in New York doing some recording. And she gets back to her train car in Ozark, Alabama. She finds the girl. She hears this rumor. She finds the girl, just believes it immediately, finds the girl, beats the shit out of her in front of everyone and throws her off of the parked train car, throws <laughs> her out of the thing. Um a, a very Beyonce move. Um, and then and then Jack comes running and is like, what the hell's wrong with you? Blah, blah, blah. And she starts chasing Jack with a loaded gun, shooting at him as he runs down the tracks to escape her. And people said that she missed on purpose, but she in fact did empty the entire round in his general direction. So Whoa. that was pretty fucking wild. Um, and then she makes, and then the best part is she takes her train and the whole troop and just gets the fuck out of Dodge and leaves Jack there, presumably with the the hussy as well, who got kicked out of the parked car. And um, and this ended up being an opportunity for Bessie to do a little lesbian two-timing of her own. All right. So in, <laughs> now we're getting into it, baby. Um, so Lillian in 19... 19- Lillian Simpson. This is uh, one of Bessie's chorus girls and in 1926 they they start sleeping together it's like christmas 1926 and we know this all from a first-hand account that was taken from ruby walker who was the the niece bessie's niece that we mentioned at the top of the episode and by january 1927 they're in st louis ruby is sharing a room with lillian bessie's lesbian lover and bessie one day marches in and just kisses lillian full on the mouth in front of ruby and Lillian's like, what? Don't play around with me like that. Like, what are you doing? Mm. And that sets Bessie off like crazy because she was obviously like a total alcoholic narcissist herself. And she screams at Lillian, I got 12 women in this show and I can have one every night if I want it. Because obviously she's living in a 12 day work week. Um, so she tells her not. And so Bessie and Lillian are in like this icy fight after that. And uh, Bessie completely ignores her for the next three days. Like Lillian still comes to the shows. And then on the fourth day, one of the other chorus girls comes running backstage at the end of their performance and says, she just found a suicide note under Lillian's door in the hotel that oh, they're all no. saying. 
So Bessie and Ruby rush next door to the hotel. They smell gas outside of Lillian's door. They try to break it down. They're going crazy. They get the hotel manager, finally break down the door. And Lillian's just lying unconscious, almost dead across the bed. They, they go over to the windows. Lillian has nailed the windows shut, which is a particularly wild, wild dark. addition. And so they, they have to smash open all of the window panes um, to let the gas out. And they rush her to the hospital. And luckily, um, she survives the night. And Bessie checks her out the next day. And then they're kind of like back together because obviously that's the most romantic thing that lesbians can do for one another is kill themselves. Um so Lillian is like, but from that moment, Lillian is like, oh, I don't give a shit about anything anymore. Like I've been to the underworld and back. So she she's like Frenching Bessie all over the place. You know, they're just like living their damn lesbian lives. But Lillian is wise to the fact that Jack is going to come back at some point. And so she leaves in February of 1927. So this was only like a one month long affair or something like that. Um, she gets the hell out of there. And that is when Bessie then went and celebrated by going to the buffet flat in Detroit that we described up top. Faggots and bull dykes and tongue baths galore. Oh my. So that gives you a little flavor, I think, of what was going on. I mean, there's all sorts of other crazy stories that Ruby had about Jack abusing Bessie about, you know, literally trying to kill her and like one time finding him with a girl and then throwing her to the ground and saying to Bessie, I'm not going to do any more to you now, but wait until the show is done tonight. You ain't a man, but you better be like one because we're going to have it out. So, you know, it's fucking toxic as shit. It's awful. Lots of booze. Lots of, I'm sure like tons of, lots of, lots of booze. Um, So Bessie also, interestingly had a uh, a brief film career and you can watch her film in the library of congress uh on the Lo- library of congress website it's called saint louis blues or saint louis blues which is also the name of a song beautiful powerful emotional song um but this movie it was all black actors it was filmed in queens in 1929 just before the stock crash and it's kind of an incredible, it's so eerie to see. I mean, mm. I, I got to be real with you. She's not a good actress. But um, mm. the the singing uh, scene is amazing. She sings this song in the movie. And uh, and it's just, it's the most mm. like hard. But it's like you're saying, I mean, for, for, for us that, you know, go into the lives of these figures, it's rather surreal. And it kind of takes you by surprise to see them there recorded mm. on camera moving walking you know you can see the beads of sweat on their forehead it's it's crazy because it <laughs> just makes everything less abstract and it puts things in such a reality you're like wow i know um, yeah no it's beautiful it's it's and and that's what i love about you know once you get to a certain period in history i always i often think about this in the future as well that like people from five, 500 years hence if they're still around and not totally boiled to death in palm springs desert like you um <laughs> are going to be able to... Who knows? We might still be around, Bash. (laughs) If those pills take... Version um, of us. (laughs) No, but but I just think that's so amazing that people will be able to see the world 500 years ago. I mean, I think it's amazing that we can see the 1940s, Mm. you know, um, these little windows into history. Anyway, the Great Depression hits poetry. I'm a poet. What can I say? The Great Depression hits and uh, the money runs out 
basically. And Bessie nice. is a full blown, it's a, it's a tale as old as time. Mm. And um, the, the music starts to change. The musical's tastes start to change. Swing music becomes a thing. All of these big, you know, brass band, jazz bands become a thing. People are just not as interested in the more raw themes of the blues. They don't want to hear about poverty, oppression, and right. the cruel world when they are all fucking poor. And, living yeah. yeah. And then there's also cinema um, and the movies, which kind of kill vaudeville in those circuits and start to eat away at the musical shows and all of that. So this touring life also takes a hit economically. And they had they they sort of went their separate ways, Ma and Bessie. I think they kept in touch in the 1930s, from what I read. Ma, sort of more soberly and smartly, goes back to Columbus, Georgia, and opens a cinema of her own in the town okay. and makes a tidy, nice little living from it. Um, she died in 1939, which is of a heart attack. Which she was not she was not that old of a heart and attack, right? Yeah. And she dies of a heart attack. I mean, she obviously was drinking and smoking her entire life. So that's probably not mm. too surprising. But Bessie actually died two years before Ma in a car accident with her third husband. So Bessie gets into this car accident and it's kind of a famous tragedy because she's in Mississippi and the rural ambulance that is reserved for people of color is slower and, you know, not doesn't have real doctors in it, all of that shit. And they don't get to her in time. They don't treat her quickly or as well as they, as another ambulance would have. And so she dies kind of unnecessarily, which is Mm. really tragic. Edward Albee, another historical homo actually wrote a play about her, about it called the death of Bessie Smith. So as so often, unfortunately, there's a slightly tragic end to our historical homos tales Um, But the mother and empress of the blues were both eventually inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for their contributions to both genres. If we could do our um, short, gay, caffeinated wrap-up, a.k.a. Why Should We Care?, I think that this is really a completely... Only if I get to be Angela Davis one more time, please. (laughs) (laughs) You know you will. That's why you got this job. smell and... I don't know what the award ceremonies are for podcasts, but I smell one. I smell (laughs) a podcast Emmy. (laughs) And and the nominees are Donald Brophy's Angela Davis. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that now. That would would go down very well. Um, Look, the resemblance is uncanny. <laughs> um, no, but the the I think this is a really forgotten era when black women really dominated American music, the record business. They were the first record stars. I I never knew about that whatsoever. So the the, the sort of birth of this modern musical industry traces its lineage back to women like Ma and Bessie, Alberta Hunter, and and a lot of those other uh, primarily black female blues singers blues and jazz singers and you don't get people like elvis presley janice joplin the beatles bob dylan mm-hmm. you don't get them without the blues so yes. without ma and bessie and their contribution i don't think we would have quite the same musical history and then of course they were also incredibly independent they were visible you know because they were celebrities they were visible incarnations of this new kind of 
um, this new kind of black life in America, really. This, mm. they, they had a certain degree of sexual freedom. They had financial independence to some degree until Bessie, of course, drank all of her money. They had mm. personal autonomy. Uh, they, that's great, Whitney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. That's what, okay, they, that's they what I was getting to. That, that's what I was getting to. I was picking up right. on the um, on the demise aspect. Yeah. Um, and and of course we do have Angela Davis to sum up this Who, point me? in the in the studio today. The blues women openly challenged the gender politics implicit in traditional cultural representations of marriage and heterosexual love relationships. They forged and memorialized images of tough, resilient, and independent women who were afraid neither of their own vulnerability nor of defending their right to be respected as autonomous human beings. Well mm-hmm. said, Angela. Well mm-hmm. bloody said. As always, a, a little bit wordy with Angela, but right, yeah, it's like Shakespeare. <laughs> that, it was like Jesus. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like academic writing to the max with her always. But that book that that's from Blues Legacies and Black Feminism is a fascinating book about a lot mm. of these early singers. So I highly recommend that. Okay, so the other thing that this reminds me of that I just have to say quickly is. Ma and Bessie really embody the intersection of the queer and black experience to me. And that's in this era when queer identities are just starting to form and when black identities are also changing as as the populations were going through all of these changes that we discussed at the top of the episode. So you have this thing where you start to sort of see the, the solidarity that could exist between the queer community and the black communities. And it's reflected in Ma and Bessie's music, right? Because when Ma and Bessie were singing defiantly about their experience as queer or lesbian or bisexual women, their black audiences could understand and almost admire them for that openness for that um, anti-establishmentness, you know, and, and that marginalization. And then at the same and at the same time, when they sang about their experiences as black women, queer non-black audiences or queer black audiences could also understand and empathize with their systematic oppression and, and repression, right? Because that was mm. obviously happening to queer people as well. So I think there's just this interesting um, I think they're they're a seed that then grew into this greater solidarity that still exists between the queer community and the black community today. And that is it for today's episode of Historical Homos. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us on Instagram at historical.homos and subscribe to our newsletter at historicalhomos.com. Please remember to give us a like, share, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Validation feeds us, ladies and gentlemen, and all that lies there in between. We love you like lovers. Bye.